Well, once again, Cedar Street Baptist Church, I love you very much. Good morning. It's good, good to be in God's house with you here this morning. And again, if you're just joining us for the first time or if it's been a while since you've been with us, we are in the book of Jonah. Our sermon series is entitled, Lord, Have Mercy. And we are now, I believe, in week six as we're, we're coming towards the end of uh, chapter number three. And there's some heavy topics that we've been talking about here in uh, the book of Jonah, but they're important topics. They apply to us now as much as they've ever applied to us before. And that's what I love about the Word of God. It's eternal truth. It's eternal truth. So as we get ready and prepare our hearts and our minds for the message today, I want to start off, as I typically do, with something to think about. Something to think about. Here's the question that I want to ask. If you were to die today and stand before God, what would you regret most about your life? What would you regret most about your life? Every single one of us in this room has some type of regret. It's part of living in a fallen world. It's part of the condition that we were born into. We don't come to the Lord Jesus Christ with our chest stuck out saying we've done all things right. We come to Him bowing our knees and confessing with our tongues that we're sinners who need to be saved. And as sinners, we have regrets. In fact, as we open up, I'm going to show you a picture on the screen here. And I want you to look at this picture. This scares the daylights out of me. This picture right here is Vincent Van Gogh. It's, it's called At Eternity's Gate. And Vincent Van Gogh painted this painting in 1890, two months before he died, with, which most believe was by suicide. And he painted this painting of a war veteran at the end of his life. And he talked about this war veteran as a person who came to the end of his rope, praying that there was something beyond this life because what he had done in this life was nothing but have a life full of regret. And when I see that painting, it terrifies me in a good way. Because as long as I still have breath in my lungs, I have the ability to go to the Lord and seek His help in such a way that I won't have to, at the end of my life, put my face in my hands and say that I regret the life that God has given me. Let me share this this personal story with you before we dive into the Word today. As I was preparing the message, I began to think about times in my life that God has done amazing things or these sweet moments that I've had with the Lord. And I was mindful a couple of years ago when I lived in Excelsior, this must have been 2009, probably, 2009, 2010. And I watched that movie, The Passion of the Christ. Some of you have seen it, the Mel Gibson movie. It's one of the most graphic movies that you'll ever watch, but I think does a pretty good job of detailing the final days of Christ uh, from the Lord's, from the Last Supper leading up to the crucifixion. And I'll never forget uh, and I'd seen the movie before. Uh, it was maybe the fourth or fifth time that I had seen it, but I was alone in that apartment in uh, Excelsior, Georgia, Judy Forehand's old country store, for those that know it well. And I, was, I, just, I, I got done watching the movie, and as the credits were rolling, I felt led by the Spirit to lay prostrate before the TV. And I had my face buried in the tile, cold tile, and I just uncontrollably wept. And I just kept, I couldn't stop weeping. And I just, it's not that I hadn't seen the movie before. It's not like I didn't know how the story ends. Okay, I'm well aware of the crucifixion of Christ. But as I felt led to just, just weep, I just, I kept saying, God, help me. It's so easy to wander from you. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. The words from that famous Christian hymn. We wander so easily that we could sit at the end of our lives like that old man in the chair with his face buried in his hands, and we can have all this regret. And yet God gives us one gift 
that can keep us from being that old man in the chair. And in one word, that gift is called repentance. It's called repentance. And it is a gift that God has given to all of us because we are going to have regret with our lives. But we can go to God, we can repent, and we can be made new. And as we still have air in our lungs, God can still use us in amazing ways. So, that leads us to the big idea today. Here's the big idea that I want us to get as we dive into the end of Jonah chapter 3. The idea is this. The wrath of God is promised to those who pursue evil, but the mercy of God is offered to those who pursue repentance. Again, we're sinful. And the Bible says before we become friends of God, which we sang today, before we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're actually seen as enemies of God because our sin separates us from His holiness. But yet God is a God of mercy. That's the title of our sermon series, and that's the focal point of our message here today. And when we place our faith in the Lord and we repent of our sins, with repentance comes mercy. With repentance comes mercy. And let me just say one last thing before we dive into the text. Here's the, and I, I know I've mentioned this before. In the fall, we had a four-week series on confession. I feel like we've covered the topic pretty well, and the Bible speaks to that specifically here in Jonah chapter 3. I think one of the reasons that we struggle to repent is, A, we measure ourselves by the standards of the world instead of the standards of God, so we don't think we need to repent. And also because we live in an age of entitlement, and we think we deserve God's mercy. Well, of course God's going to be merciful and loving to me because I'm a lovable person, right? That's what we think. But when we measure ourselves by the standards of God, all of us fall desperately short. And it's then when we look through the lens of the Bible that we see how bad we need to be forgiven and how much we need to repent. And also, can I say how much of a gift it is to repent to the Lord. And we're going to see a beautiful portrait of repentance followed by mercy As we look at Jonah chapter 3, the title of our message today is A King Who Repents and a God Who Relents. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. This will be at the tail end here in verses 6 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the pew Bibles presented before you or beside you, you can turn to page 921 in your pew Bibles and follow along here with us. Again, 921 in your pew Bibles. And if you would stand out of the reverence to the reading of God's holy infallible, inerrant word. Again, we are in Jonah chapter number 3, and we'll be reading verses 6 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord starting in verse number 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let us pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, again, we love you. 
Thank you, Father. You are such a good and gracious and merciful God. And you're also a holy God who will be obeyed. And Father, help us to cling to the truth of your word and not diminish either one of those things here today, that you are holy and you demand obedience, but you are loving and you offer mercy. Father, I pray that you open up all of our hearts and minds to receive the truth of this word as we walk through Jonah chapter 3. Help us to learn, help us to grow, help us to repent, and most of all, help us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, your ultimate act of grace and act of mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. Well, let me do just a, just a quick 60-second recap, because I know some of us are coming in here, haven't been here in a few weeks. Maybe it's been a while since you read the book of Jonah. So let me start back at chapter 1 and just give you a quick narrative of how we've gotten to where we are here in chapter 3. So, the book of Jonah, starting in chapter 1. You have Jonah the prophet. He's received a word from the Lord. And the Lord says to him, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. He wants to go to Nineveh, which, by the way, is the sworn enemy of the Israelites, and he's telling him to go and preach repentance, and Jonah doesn't want to go. Why doesn't he want to go? Because Jonah knows the nature of God. Jonah knows that God is merciful, and that if if Jonah goes and preaches repentance, that the people of Nineveh may actually repent and be blessed by God, and Jonah does not want to share the blessing. He's part of the privileged, chosen nation of Israel, and he wants to keep the blessing all to himself. He doesn't realize that as God chose a nation unto himself, it was always God's intention that he would bless the rest of the world through that nation. And Jonah didn't want to share the blessing. So what did Jonah do? He did what we all do when we don't want to obey God. He ran. And he thought he could outrun God. And what did he do? He paid a fare, got on a boat at Joppa on the way to Tarshish, and he found out there is no outrunning the creator of the universe. And so he's on this boat And the storm is getting worse and worse. And these mariners are on the boat crying out to all their false gods. And finally they figure out by casting lots who it is that's responsible for this storm. And it's Jonah. And so what do they do with Jonah? Jonah says, you know what? I'm responsible. Just throw me out of the boat and the storm will come. Well, they don't really want to throw him out of the boat. So they try to row their way back to dry land. But they too find that you cannot quench the will of God. When God decides that he's going to do something, you either get in line with it or get out of the way because God will have his will fulfilled. And so finally, you have these sailors who decide, you know what? We have no other choice. And they throw Jonah into the water and the sea calms. But then we see, we read this a couple weeks ago, Jonah is swallowed up by a great fish. Everybody knows the book of Jonah. And typically people say whale, and it could very well be a whale. But the Bible says that Jonah was swallowed up by a great fish and for three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, he learns to repent and he sings a psalm of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord as he finds out that this fish was not God's punishment but was God's provision because he would have died in his sin without the provision of the Lord. But he makes a vow while he's in the belly of the fish that he will repay the Lord by being obedient. So we learn that he is spit out of the fish onto dry land. And then last week we saw that he's on dry land. And finally, he gets his marching orders a second time from a merciful God. And he makes good on those orders. He says, what you told me to do, God, I'm going to do it. 
And he goes and he, and it says, the Bible says last week we were reading in Jonah, the beginning of chapter three, that it was a three days journey into the city of Nineveh. And that was the Bible's way of telling us that Nineveh is this big city, but it's an important city. And you don't just show up on day one. You got to go through protocol and meet the leaders and tell them why you're there. And you got to go through all this formality before you can teach and preach. But he shows up on the scene day one, screaming from the top of his lungs, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And the message gets to the people of Nineveh. And as we see here in the passage today, it gets to the king. And and, and we all see that God had already prepared their hearts and their minds to receive this message. And when they receive it, they understand right away that God is not a God to be trifled with. And so that leads us to where we are in the passage here today. So let's take a look at the text here. The first thing I want us to see out of verse 6 is this. The response of a fearful king. The response of a fearful king. Verse 6 says this, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. All right, a couple things I want to mention as we're walking through verse 6. First, I I want us to notice this. This is a powerful word that reaches a powerful man. All right, he's the ruler of a very evil yet powerful nation, So how powerful did this word have to be that he immediately responded to it with such repentance? All right, typically when people grow in their power, especially those who are evil, they're not scared or fearful over many things. There's nothing that rattles their cage. In fact, they become blind in their own power. Not the case here. Yes, Nineveh is a very, very wicked nation. All right, this is the Assyrian nation, and we'll see later on in Scripture, they go and they do attack Israel, they capture part of the northern kingdom, and eventually this kingdom or this city is destroyed because of their wickedness. But right here, what we see is a king who is blown away by the power of a single word, and and it's God who prepares in his heart and his mind to receive it, and he responds to it immediately with repentance. It was a prepared messenger, as Jonah was sent. It was a prepared message, but it was also a prepared audience. All right? And, and I think about this as, as a pastor. I remember at seminary them saying before, you go and you be faithful and you preach the word of God because there are some of you who have walked in this room today and you are struggling with so many different things. God has already opened up your heart and your mind and you are ready to hear the word. And all I'm supposed to do is get up here and preach it faithfully. And that's what Jonah was called to do. Don't change the message. Don't erase the message. Don't ignore the message. You get up and you preach it and you watch what the power of God does. Well, in this particular passage, the power of God changes a wicked king in a moment. And how do we know that? Well, he responds by putting on sackcloth and sitting in ashes. Now, what in the world is that? Okay, you've probably seen it because it's a Hebrew tradition in biblical times If there was time of mourning or time of repentance, they would put on sackcloth and they would sit in ashes. What is it and why do they do it? Well, sackcloth, as I've done some research, was the roughest material that you could find at the time. In fact, it was mainly mostly of of goat hair, but the way that we could understand it today is burlap. All right, so let's say that you took off your shirt and put on a burlap sack and felt the roughness of that sackcloth rubbing against your skin. And the ashes are simply ashes from burnt wood. And you just sit in a pile of smoldering burnt ashes. And and you have sackcloth on. Why in the world would you do this? Well, for a couple of reasons. All right? And we can learn from this. 
I'm not saying that we need to go buy sackcloth and burn some wood and sit in it for five days. But here's what I am saying. In a season of repentance, why would they do this? They would do this because they were denying themselves of any comfort whatsoever that in the excruciating outward pain, they would confess to, the, to God the inward pain. And the same thing for mourning. All right, when they're mourning the loss of someone and they put on sackcloth and ashes, what they would do is intimately involve themselves in the moment. They say, we lost someone that we loved. We're not going to ignore the pain. We're going to embrace it head on so that we don't spend the rest of our lives running away from the pain, but that we embrace it. That we embrace it. I think that we can learn something from this. I really do. Again, for those of us who mourn, we all mourn in different ways. But can I tell you the American way? When you're living in pain... You get yourself busy as fast as you can. And I'm not saying that's wrong, and that's, somehow, that's how some people are wired, but most of the people who ignore the pain that they're in and they fill their, their schedules up with as much work as they possibly can to stay busy, what happens most of the time is that pain catches up with them somewhere because that wound has never healed. You ever notice the people who the, immediately... Upon the death of a loved one, they enter into a time of mourning and grief and they weep and they weep and they weep and it seems like days and maybe even weeks and then all of a sudden, they're able to move on because they embraced it head on. I think we can learn something from this. But not only that, let's move on from mourning to repentance. That's the other reason why they put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. Why would they do this? Why would they, why would they repent in this way? Because there's no other way to truly show remorse. Repentance is turning away from that sin, but the remorse that they're showing is, is, is to be buried in the ashes and to wear the sackcloth and say, what I feel outwardly is what I also feel inwardly, God, that I have, I have disobeyed you. So let this sackcloth as it rubs my skin and the ashes as I sit in it in despair, let me show you outwardly what I feel inwardly. And what I feel inwardly is remorse. I'm sorry for the way that I have violated a holy God. I'm sorry for the way that I violated a holy God. That's, that's how vivid this picture is. The response of a fearful king in verse 6. I mean, he responds in an amazing way. He's an evil king and he just turns and puts sackcloth on and sits in ashes and he shows that he truly understands how much he has violated a holy God. And that leads us to number two. I want us to see a, the repentance of a violent city. The repentance of a violent city. Let's go back and look at verses 7 through 9. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. All right, so I want us to see a few things. First, in verse 7, it says, By the decree of the king and his nobles. When a king makes a decree, it becomes a command. The king's not playing games. He has been changed. He understands that if the city does not turn, they're going to be utterly destroyed. And so he commands the entire city to respond to this word by repenting. And he wants them to show outwardly the same thing that he's showing, to fast and to put on sackcloth and ashes. And this is a threefold expression of repentance. What do I mean by that? Well, first, the outside of their bodies, all right, they're torturing themselves through the sackcloth, and it, in this torture, they're showing the violence of their hands. They've been evil. 
But then the inside of their bodies, without fast, with fasting, without eating, they're torturing the inside of their bodies, pointing towards the, the violence of their hearts. And finally, their repentance shows the action of their bodies. They were going in one direction, and repentance is when you turn away and completely go in the opposite direction. So they're doing a 180. They're evil. They're wicked. They hate the Israelites, but they're at a moment in time where they hear a message and they say, you know what? I'm going to turn away from the evil ways, and I'm going to put my faith in God and beg for His mercy, because if I don't, this whole country will be completely erased. Completely erased. And in that statement we see an acknowledgement of two things, God's holiness and His mercy. They acknowledge God's holiness by saying, if we don't repent, we're going to be destroyed. But they plea for God's mercy because they say this in verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. They don't quite know the God that Jonah knows. Jonah knows that he is a graceful and merciful God because he had three days in the belly of a fish to think about it. But they're, they're, they're beginning to understand that God is not to be trifled with, but if they truly repent, there's mercy, there's grace, there's restoration, there's forgiveness. Think about the picture of the man that we looked at at the beginning of the, of the sermon. Think about the man sitting in the chair with his face buried in his hands. I would believe that he understands a holy God. There you go. I believe he understands a holy God. But there's a man that doesn't understand the mercy of God and the gift of repentance. He knows nothing but regret. I don't want that for my life. I don't want that for any of your lives as well. Perhaps you've, you've thought to yourself, and admit this, okay? I've been here since August. I've preached a whole lot on confession and repentance. I've made it a part of the service. And some of you have probably thought, man, he's banging that drum pretty loud. Do you know Why? It terrifies me to think about being that old man. I don't want to be that man, and I don't want you to be that man or woman either. I really don't, because we are sinners, and we don't need to play games. We don't need to come in here on our Sunday best and act like we have it all together when we have utterly failed a holy God. We need to be honest. And if we can't be honest in the house of the Lord, where can we be honest? Repentance is a gift. Embrace the gift. Confess your sins. Be restored. So now we have seen the response of a fearful king, the repentance of a violent city, and third, and finally, I want us to see the relenting of a merciful God. The relenting of a merciful God. Verse 10 says this, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now with the time we have left, I really want to dig in here on verse 10 because there's a whole lot happening here in one verse first of all we need to say that there is unprecedented mercy here again think about this israel is the promised nation of god it's his people his chosen people and god decides to give mercy and grace to the sworn enemies of his people all right the best way i can explain it for those of you who are parents or grandparents that is you offering forgiveness or mercy to the very people who have hurt your children or your grandchildren the most. You think that's easy? It's not. Somebody hurts your child or grandchild, what, what is it that you feel inside? Revenge. Don't you ever hurt my family. You know, I've never thought about owning a gun until I got a daughter. I'm telling you what, I don't have one, but I'm probably going to get one soon. And if anybody comes into my house and comes anywhere near my wife or daughter, they're in trouble. They're going to hear the word of God, but they're going to hear the sound of a barrel. 
I'm telling you right now, you will not mess with my family. I know what it is. I know what it is to have a family that I do not want messed with. God knows it more than we do. And these people were evil and oppressed the nation of Israel. Even worse than this, history shows us that God in his sovereignty knows this nation eventually is going to be even worse than they were before. They are going to take captive the northern kingdom of Israel. I mean, they are going to bring them into exile. These Assyrians are evil people. God knows they're going to do evil. Yet in this particular time and space, God hears a word of confession and he offers unbelievable mercy. Unreal. Unreal what God does. This, this reminds me of, of a, uh, a sign that used to hang on a wall. Most of you remember our dear brother Timmy Sykes. Uh, brother Timmy allowed me to stay in his house as I was preparing for seminary. And uh, there was a sign that just sat, I was in his living room, it sat above the threshold of his kitchen, and it just said, prayer changes things. I mean, that just, that just says it all right there. Prayer changes things. And I'll never forget where I was the first time I saw that sign, thinking about what it is that God was doing with my life as I was dating Ashley and preparing for seminary and not really knowing what God was doing. But this leads us to a very important topic that I want to take the last few minutes to talk about. All right? Stay with me here these last few minutes because this is so important. And I think many people get really confused about this, okay? So I always say behind the pulpit that God is sovereign. What I mean by sovereign is he is in control of all things, past, present, future. He knows all things. He can do all things. He is aware of all things. And yet in this passage, we see that God decides not to do what he was going to do had they not repented. So how do we, how do we put all this together? All right, God's in control of all things, yet he said he was going to do something and he didn't do it. Does that mean God changes his mind? How do we put all this together? Well, let me, just go, let me just on a surface level cover this topic because I know you've all thought about this before. And I think sometimes our theology gets out of whack when we try to figure all this out because all of us do believe that God's in control, right? We all say everything happens for a reason. Even a non-believer says those things. But yet, how does all of this work? If God is in full control and he says he's going to do something and then he doesn't do it, does, does God not know what's going to happen? Does God change his mind? I think there are two questions this last verse gives us, and then I'm going to give you some responses to this. When you read verse 10, I think all of us would say, does God know everything about the future, and does God change his mind? Those are two important questions to think about. Does God know everything about the future, and does God change his mind? Now, those are two questions. Let me give you a few responses. All right, what I want to say, first of all, is God knows everything at all times, past, present, and future. God knows everything at all times. I had a friend of mine share this with me, and this is, I know the person that was saying this was trying to be comforting, but all of this is awful. I have a friend of mine in Vidalia who's a pastor who lost his baby girl. He had a daughter that got sick. I think she was two years old, and she got uh, sickness, and she never recovered, and she died. And at the service, one of his members of his congregation came up to him, gave him a hug, and said these words. God is as surprised as you are about what happened. Can I tell you something? That's not good news. That's terrible news. There's no way that that could possibly bring comfort to someone because what that says is God does not know all things, that God can't do all things, and that there isn't a greater purpose for why it's happened. 
We need to understand that God does know all things. He created us in time and space, but he stands outside of time and space, so he's not confined by it. So God can see the beginning, the middle, and the end all at one time. And because we can't see the end, sometimes pain makes no sense to us. Sometimes suffering means no, makes no sense to us. God, why did you do that? Why did you allow this to happen? You, you, you didn't have to do that, but you did. Well, not only does he know all things, but he's in control of all things, and he has a purpose for every single thing that happens. All right, Job chapter 14, verse 5 says this. Talking about human beings. He says, since his days, meaning human beings' days, since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. God has, has determined everything. Every hair on your head, how many days you will live, how many breaths you will take. But at the same time, here's where the mystery and the joy comes in. We are not robots. God has given us genuine choices. And the choices that we make determine the reality that we live in. All right? So how do these two things work together? Well, I believe here's a way that we can understand it. You have what is called God's active will and God's passive will. God's active will is when he causes things to happen. His passive will is when he allows things to happen for a greater good. He's in control of everything. Let me give you an example. The book of Genesis. All right? The story of Joseph. Most of you know this story of Joseph, okay? So let's look at, at, at what would be uh, active will and what would be passive will. Well, in chapter 30, we see that Rachel is no longer able to bear children, but God wants to bless her, and he opens up her womb, and she's able to have in her old age, Joseph. God actively caused that to happen. Now, what happens throughout the life of Joseph? All right, his brothers throw him into a pit and then sell him into slavery. And he gets toted off to Egypt. And while he's in Egypt, he gets framed for adultery. And he gets thrown into prison. And then while he's in prison, they find out his amazing gift of interpreting dreams. And he becomes second in charge next to Pharaoh. And he saves an entire nation from famine. Now, God's a holy God and he's in control of all things, right? So did God cause Joseph's brothers to throw him in a pit? Is God the author of evil? Did God force them to sin? Absolutely not. That's what we would call God's passive will. He allowed it to happen because it was a greater thing that would come out of that. And we know that because in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, what did Joseph say? He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So God's in control. He either causes all things or allows all things, yet within the sovereignty of his will and his plan, he gives us the ability to make genuine choices. And our choices have big consequences. So the last thing I want to say, does, does that mean God changes his mind? Well, yes and no. God is not, the, the book of Numbers says that God is not a man that he would change his mind. However, God does not change his mind on anything unforeseen, which means God already knows in his foreknowledge that people are going to repent. So it's not like he's confused or surprised, but God is emotionally and uniquely involved in the lives of his creation so that when we do repent, he is so intimately involved, he feels every moment the way a loving father would feel when his child repents. It's not that because God knows it's going to happen, he's not as excited as someone who didn't know. He does know, but he is genuinely, intimately in every single moment with us. And that is so amazing. That is so amazing 
that God in some ways does not change his mind because he knows it's coming, but he does in the fact that he engages with his people. He, you know, another, one of the authors that I was reading as I studied this said he changes not his mind, but his attitude in every situation. It's almost like when I had a dog, okay? Most of you hear me talk about my dog Sarge, big English Mastiff that I had to adopt out. Most of you had dogs have done this, right? You come home and there's a mess on the, on the kitchen floor and you realize your dog couldn't hold it long enough. See, so you're, you're well aware that the dog did it, but what do you do? I go up to my dog, did you do that? Did you do that? I wanted to engage with the dog, make the dog aware of what I was seeing, but engaging in that moment to show my remorse over what the dog had done. And I feel it's the same way with God. It's not that God doesn't understand. It's not that God's surprised. If God was surprised with our lives, that would be awful news. If God did not know the future, that's a heresy called open theism. It says that God does not know the future. If God doesn't know the future, I don't know what in the world we're learning when we read the book of Revelation. He does know the future. He's preordained it. It's all going to happen according to his will. And yet at the same time, we have genuine ability to make real choices, and our choices affect our reality. So when we read this last passage, and God says, it says that he relented from what he otherwise would have done. I believe with all my heart, if the Ninevites had not repented, God would certainly have wiped them out. And the reason I know that is eventually they don't repent, and eventually he does. That's the God that we serve. He's so powerful. He's so in control, yet... As a good father to his children, he's uniquely and intimately involved in every moment of our lives. That's such good news. And all he does is call us to repent, put our faith in him, to trust in him. So let us us draw to a close by summing it all up. We all deserve God's wrath because of our evil sin. But we are offered God's mercy when we repent and place our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate act and gift of mercy that God has bestowed upon us. And he is calling us to repent and trust in Jesus. To repent and trust in the Lord. In the essence of time, I'm just going to move right to our takeaways. And then we'll pray out. All right, first, as a takeaway from our message today, I want us to remember we will always regret when we don't repent. I felt like Johnny Cochran when I was writing that, all right? We will always regret when we don't repent, right? I mean, I'm telling you, I'm not trying to be cute. It's the truth. There's not any time in your life where you've committed a sin where you will be glad when you did not confess that to a holy God. There's no gift of hiding sin. It only makes things worse. Second, let us keep short accounts with God and repent daily, Again, this is another burden of mine. People come to faith in Jesus. They place their faith in the Lord. They become born again. They get baptized. They join the church. And then they hear a message like today and say, that's for them. That's for those who haven't joined the church yet. That's not for me. They'll shake my hand on the way out and say, man, they really, they really needed to hear that this morning. <clears throat> we need to repent. Your pastor needs to repent. Your deacons need to repent. Your choir needs to repent. We all need to repent daily. It's like, I've said this before, it's like the back of the shampoo bottle, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And finally, to turn away from sin means to turn towards Christ. To turn away from sin, turn towards Christ. All right, repentance is not just saying you're sorry, it's turning away from the things that you're sorry about 
and turning towards the one who made provision for you through his death and resurrection. This is what repentance is all about. What an amazing gift. What an amazing gift. We're going to enter into a a time of invitation, and if you have never confessed with your tongue that Christ is Lord, if you've never believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you've never bowed your knee to his lordship, today's the day. And as we sing, you're welcome to come forward and, and you can pray alone. I'd be happy to pray with you. If you want to catch me after the service and share maybe something that God's put upon your heart, I'd be happy to, to pray with you then. But do, do the Lord's business today. Repent of sin. Place your faith in the Lord. Be cleansed. Enjoy the intimacy that comes with a God who wants to have relationship with his creation. That's a king who repents and a God who relents. Let us pray together. Father, again, we love you so much. And we confess that we are your creation tainted by sin. And we are unholy and sometimes ungrateful, Father, for all that you've done for us. But let this be a season and a day of repentance. Father, help us to turn back to you. Right now, I pray through the conviction of your Holy Spirit that you would bring to our mind and our hearts things that we've not done right or things that we've done wrong that we need to turn away from. Father, help us. Help us to repent. Help us to trust in you and your grace and your mercy. And thank you for what you've done for us through your Son on the cross who lived for us, who died for us, who took on our punishment, and who gave us his righteousness. It's in his name we pray. Amen.